when these crises raise people's attention to some of these important issues, that attention has staying power, right? So that people who may not have been thinking too much about global health issues now suddenly are thinking a lot about it and it becomes a driver for them to, to continue to be interested in it once this particular crisis goes away. Welcome to The Value in Giving. I'm your host and president of Vanguard Charitable, Jane Greenfield. On this podcast, we'll hear from leaders across the world of philanthropy. They'll share tips and stories with us to help people and organizations make the most of their charitable efforts. On today's show, we have Michael Neinheis, president and CEO of UNICEF USA. Michael, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a, a very uh, crazy time for us to be talking, but an important time because I think a lot of people are so very engaged in their philanthropy right now. So we're, we're thrilled to have an expert in the field with us. But let's start off by having you tell all our listeners a little bit about UNICEF. What are you all about? We're all about kids. We work uh, to provide opportunities for the most vulnerable kids in the world uh, to have a chance to thrive, providing health care and water and sanitation and education and food programs uh, long-term development and education for them. Uh, we're all about giving kids a chance to thrive. Well, that's a pretty important purpose and mission. That's terrific. Tell me a little bit about your background. I happen to know you just joined UNICEF, what, about a month ago, right? Yeah, just a month ago. So it's been a very interesting start to, to come and join the organization. Um, by the time I arrived, um, our offices are in New York City. The city was pretty much shut down. Our offices were shut down. So uh, I've been coming into the organization to lead it uh, all remotely, uh, like so many of us are working today. It's been, I think, both a challenge to do that uh, without sort of face-to-face -face interaction with, with the key uh, staff around me. Uh, but on the other hand, it's been maybe a little bit of a, a leveling of communication, right? So I've had the same kind of interactions with our colleagues across the globe and across the country as I would have had in, in our central office in New York. Uh, because we're all operating the same way with video conference. That's a good point. And we're all getting a little better at it, too, because we're getting some practice. So hopefully that's helping as well. Step me back, though. You have a great background that you brought with you to UNICEF. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. I've been working in uh, the international relief and development community for about 25 years uh, in three organizations now. Uh, I've had a chance to to visit and see and be part of programming in, in uh, dozens of countries around the world and have seen the both the hardships that families and children face in those places and also the the opportunities that are provided when effective aid programs come alongside and um, and help them chart a new future for their own lives. Uh, so that's been great. I actually started my career as a as a journalist a long time ago and had a, an epiphany moment uh, while doing some reporting in Central America at one point about the power of local health workers in that case to make a difference in their own community and, and just made a decision that's what I wanted to commit my life to. Wow, and you're doing it on a global scale. That's, uh, that's fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about where we sit today, which is um, in a different world than we were in even a few months back. Tell me a little bit about how UNICEF is supporting COVID-19 relief, both here and around the globe. Yeah, so let's talk about the global response uh, first, which I think is really important. I know that 
in our own country right now, this seems all consuming for us. And in many ways it is, and uh, we don't want to overlook that at all, but it is a, it is a global pandemic. It's the, it's the first really global crisis that UNICEF has responded to in its 70 plus years of existence because it's just so unusual. So UNICEF began uh, really responding in those first countries in the Asia region uh, that were impacted, including in China. And uh, the work has been along several lines of work. One is uh, getting uh, supplies, uh, the masks and the personal protective equipment that are needed uh, by everybody, but especially by the health workers, uh, getting that out to um, uh, to people all around the, the globe, actually in about 44 countries now that we've been able to distribute those products including into China right away. There's something like 6 million gloves and more than that of masks and cargo loads of uh, personal protective equipment and all kinds of things that we provided, which is really important. And not only in the countries that were deeply affected, but importantly, in the poorer countries that have not yet been significantly affected. Uh, and so the work there is really preventative, right? Getting these materials to those countries before the virus hits is uh, is incredibly helpful. So that's one. Uh, number one is education. So we're really concerned about the one and a half billion children that are out of school who were in school before this and what's happening with them. Have some very innovative uh, uh, programs that we're doing to uh, to get curriculum to, to kids, even in the poorest places that are not in school uh, currently. Also, a lot of um, important health messaging to make sure that people have trusted information about how to um, avoid the, uh, the disease in the first place, which is really important. So those are some of the big pieces that we're doing globally. And, and here in the U.S., uh, we have a number of efforts underway to, to focus on the need here, here in our own country. And one of them is a, a program we have for students who are kind of stuck at home and uh, provide some activity for them uh, that also connects them to the global crisis. Uh, we have our student clubs and high schools and colleges who are reaching out to their uh, congressional representatives to advocate for funding for COVID, both domestically and globally, and also to make sure that they're remembering the important work of UNICEF around the world. And we've used our, our website and our other channels to, to put out trusted, uh, good information about how to uh, personally protect yourself from uh, from COVID as well. So we are engaged here uh, um, in our own country as well as with the important work around the globe. That's great. You know, it's it's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine over the weekend and she has school-age kids. And she said to me, my biggest worry is the hit that my kids are taking in their education because I am clearly not a teacher. And this is someone who actually is highly educated and has resources available to teach their kids. So, you know, your point around the impact on children and their learning is, is a big one that I actually hadn't thought about. I was just going to say some of the interesting ways that we're dealing with that globally is we do have a very innovative program uh, with Microsoft and something we call a learning passport. It was originally developed specifically for refugee kids who are out of, uh, out of their own country and are providing um, their national curriculum to them uh, using online resources, which is really important. And we've just begun to adapt that uh, to countries that have been hit hard by COVID and kids are out of school to be able to use that there. But of course, that, that only helps in places where people have access to online learning. So in other countries, uh, we've been able to work with uh, television and radio broadcasting to uh, to do some broadcasting of, of curriculum to people uh, in, in those regions. So in a lot of the poorest places, radio is the most important uh, medium. So to be able to get radio uh, to deliver curriculum uh, to people who are um, out of school has been has been important, too. 
Wow, it just shows the need to be able to, uh, you have to pivot very quickly to, to find the need and deliver to it in this situation. You know, we're doing a lot with our donors to try to help them think through how to be part of the solution when it comes to responding to the crisis. And, and they are responding. It, the increase in giving, the increase in grants at Vanguard Charitable just with our donors is incredible. Our numbers are up 40% year over year when it comes to dollars granted to organizations across the country and around the world. And it's, it's really inspiring. But it also causes us to step back and say, gosh, you know, we're seeing this change in giving. People are giving more, even in the backdrop of the fact that the markets are down. There's a lot of economic uncertainty. And yet donors who have donor advised funds understand that that money isn't theirs anymore. It's solely for charity. So they're giving and they're giving more. So I'm also wondering, what are the changes we're going to see in the future in terms of their giving? So let's start to chat about that a little bit. First, Michael, what are the changes that you're seeing, if any, in giving to UNICEF in response to COVID-19? Well, we certainly see this in every crisis, that there is a a rise of giving to that specific crisis, right? So we do have a lot of people responding to COVID-19, not only for our global work, but for some of the work we're doing domestically here. Uh, You know, we hear from our donors about their need to invest locally uh, as well in in the the food banks and and, uh, and the the healthcare institutions and things that are um, responding in their own in their own country. And, and we think that's great, right? So this, this needs to happen. At the same time, all of the same underlying issues, uh, in our case, that children, vulnerable children face around the world still exist. You know, there are incredibly important, you know, for instance, basic vaccination programs that still need to happen. There's 117 million children around the world whose basic vaccinations right now are suspended because of all of the attention on COVID. We need to figure out somehow how to continue supporting and uh, doing the work that's necessary for all of that ongoing work and COVID at the same time. This is a a tough ask in the midst of a falling economy in in our own country. But I think this is where those people who have resources in um, donor advised funds or in other ways, uh, this is the moment to, to put those funds to good work to make sure the ongoing activity continues and the emergency response around COVID. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that's spot on, Michael. We uh, we are sending that message as well to our donors to say you are uniquely situated to actually be part of the solution because you have a donor advised fund. It's interesting. We're sending a lot of messages to our donors. I mean, one of them is continue to support the charities you've always cared about and COVID relief, not or. But the other thing is we're, we're just asking them um, what more they need from us to be successful in reaching their goals around their COVID response. And um, we're getting a lot of great insights. And they're also telling us stories around what they're doing. And um, I'll tell you, one of our donors said something which is um, encapsulates what we're hearing from so many. This one donor said, you know, of all the benefits of having a Vanguard Charitable Fund, it never occurred to us that we might be uniquely able to respond to the needs of our community in an emergency. To be able to lump several years worth of donations to charities at this time of greatest need is a privilege. And so I think we're hearing from our donors that they get it. They get the message that you're sending, which is it's not giving or it's giving and giving to COVID relief and the charities they support and giving more even in this difficult economic environment. Question for you is, what do you think the long-term impact of COVID-19 on philanthropy will be? 
Well, I was hoping in these cases that um, when these crises raise people's attention to some of these important issues, that that attention has staying power, right? So that people who may not have been thinking too much about global health issues now suddenly are thinking a lot about it and it becomes a driver for them to to continue to be interested in it once this particular crisis goes away. Because there are many global health crises they're not always ones that we experience here uh, ourselves. So this has this unique moment, I think, to sensitize us uh, to the reality of, of global health issues. So one of my hopes is that that there'll be um, more and more uh, donors, individuals, foundations, corporations who are going to make critical investments in global health, not only the pandemic response, but global health infrastructure. You know, what we need is the the building up of weak health systems around the world uh, which can be, you know, a vanguard of, of protection against uh, pandemics from spreading and, and can address all the daily issues that, that people in poor communities face. I think one of the things we're finding is, you know, health is a gateway to everything else. If people are sick and they're unhealthy, it's impossible to make progress uh, in the rest of your life. And that certainly is true of, you know, the 26 million people who are out of work today uh, because of this pandemic here here in our country. But you you know put that in another country in context where where people have to work today to feed their families tonight, and if they're not healthy, they're not able to do that. So we really need strong investments in global health. So I'm hoping that's one of the outcomes of this. That's really interesting, Michael. Let's get into that a little bit more right after this. I know the other day you and I were chatting and you also talked a little bit about how philanthropy is going to become even more important in the future than it is now, simply because of the strain on government resources associated with this COVID response and the fact that it could indicate that there's fewer government resources for charities such as UNICEF in the future. And if that's the case, you're going to be a little bit more focused on your need to supplement with private funding. Sure. I mean, if there's ever a time that we understand the value of the local food bank in our community, uh, now's the time, right? The rush and the run on those uh, local nonprofits is really high. So we should pay attention to that and not forget them as, as, as we move further. The need for the kind of services that nonprofits provide is really important. It's not just gap filling in terms of filling the spaces that governments don't operate well in. We nonprofits are on the front line of this. It's our responsibility, really, to be there, uh, not only at these moments, but in ongoing uh, work as well. So, you know, that sense of responsibility, I think that all of us who lead nonprofits have to to say some of what we're doing is 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 in some sense not the government's responsibility. We're set up in this country uh, to have this incredibly powerful social sector, this incredibly powerful not-for-profit sector to really provide important services. And um, and we need to remember that as we, uh, you know, as, as this crisis ends and, and, and we move into the future. I know that UNICEF has dealt with many crises in the past. I mean, this is obviously a huge crisis, huge health and economic crisis across the globe. But UNICEF has been no stranger to helping out in times of need 
Um, can you share a story about when you saw the real impacts of UNICEF during a global crisis in the past? As I mentioned, I've been in this line of work for about 25 years, leading two other uh, global health-focused organizations, spent a lot of time in the kind of communities where UNICEF uh, works and have seen UNICEF programming up close and personal. There's, there's, there's a couple of things that I like about it a lot. One of them is there's very few organizations that are able to tie together really well humanitarian response, which is really crisis response, immediate needs, and longer-term development. The ability to link those two together, to have a long enough viewpoint, because we've been around for 70 plus years, we understand what's happening in these communities, to not just put band-aids on things in a crisis, but to really think about how that impacts long-term development work. So we really talk about these two sides of the work, humanitarian and development, and linking those. UNICEF does that extraordinarily well. And I would say the other thing is that I've that, that I've witnessed on the ground is UNICEF has this unique ability to work with and alongside governments, which is really critical because if you want to make sustainable change in health and education and employment in those, uh, you know, in the poorer countries, you have to work in and through governments, but they also work with the private sector. They work with local NGOs. They work with local nonprofits in these countries that are, that are also doing incredibly important work. And this ability to, to live kind of in both of those worlds and to link them together too is really unique and a special part of UNICEF. So I've seen that in, you know, multiple countries uh, around the world. But, and, and then the other thing would be just again, the focus on children, right? So when you think about a child, UNICEF has this sense of it's not just that you can't see the child in isolation, but the child exists in a family and the family exists in a community. And the linking of the needs of all of that together ultimately to impact children is is really important. And maybe just one you know specific story here in the in the U.S. too. You know, one of the things we're doing uh, during this covid crisis, knowing that uh, kids are out of school and are at home, we have a really unique uh, program called Kid Power that works uh, that works in schools through teachers to give activities for kids in the classroom that uh, are great for their physical health, physical and mental health, really, but also at the same time helps them become global citizens by connecting the activities they do in the classroom to needs around the world. And we've opened this up for uh, parents now uh, who are you know, having their kids at home and are looking for activities. And uh, we've got just some great stories of parents and kids who are using uh, this medium to be actively engaged you know, themselves with their needs, but also thinking globally about the needs around the world. So this idea of touching children inside their families, inside their communities, and then giving them the breadth of what's happening in the world is really important. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've had this chance because of the role that I play in philanthropy to really get to know UNICEF a lot better than I used to. I grew up knowing UNICEF because of Trick or Treat for UNICEF. I think we all had our boxes as we went out the door on Halloween night. But I've had this chance to really have uh, a broader appreciation for all that you do. And if I were someone who was interested in giving to UNICEF and I wanted to know more about those efforts, how would I find that information? The easiest thing, obviously, is to, to go to our website, unicefusa.org. You'll find there uh, you know, what we're doing around COVID. You'll, you'll find uh, great stories of our impact on all these other issues, uh, healthcare and water and sanitation and education and other things. And I think that's a great way to to get to know us. Um, you know, if you're if you're a parent with a with a child at home right now, you can go to uh, UNICEFKidPower.org/parents and check out the activities we have there and how we connect the activities that your kids can do uh, to help them understand sort of the global 
causes as well. Uh, one of the other things that people can do is is join us for a live event that we're going to have in, in about a week and a half. Uh, it's called UNICEF Won't Stop, uh, which is really the mantra for us. Uh, you know, we will not stop until we reach the vulnerable kids in the midst of a crisis and 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 in in sort of the ongoing issues that they that they face. And you can find information about that event, which is going to include a bunch of celebrities and stars and others sort of rallied around this cause of uh, of reaching out to the most vulnerable around the world at uh, unicefwontstop.org. Uh, so unicefwontstop.org is the way to, to track that. Uh, the date's going to be set very soon, and uh, we're excited for what that's going to uh, offer. And we'll give you a, a chance to, to spend an hour or so uh, doing something other than uh, streaming Netflix. <laughs> I think that's great. And I love that. UNICEF won't stop. That, uh, that says everything about your organization. So I'm going to switch a little bit to a new topic, Michael. You're a leader of a very well-known global nonprofit. And as such, you likely get questions from people who are philanthropically inclined. I know I do as well. So I'm going to pose a few questions and give you an opportunity to speak directly to our listeners and give them a little advice. Are there any questions a donor should ask specifically before deciding what charity to support? I would ask about results. It's a little too easy to just look at that uh, program versus administration operations uh, ratio and see if it's above 90% you feel good and if it's below 90% you don't feel good. You know, there may be reasons for organizations, uh, just the way they're set up, the kind of work they do, their their expense base to do that kind of work that just may uh, not be well reflected in those kinds of ratios. So I would ask a lot about results. Can you show me how you track results and what those results look like. Um, because that's that's important, right? That's what we're trying to get done ultimately. It's one thing to say, you know, 93% of our uh, finances go to programming, but to what end? Right, that's a good point. I'd take, uh, I'd take 80% if you got real results over 93 with no results at all, right? Um, okay, so the, the final question to you in terms of advice for donors is, is just, it's a broader one. What is your most important piece of advice right now? For donors? Well, I would say, first of all, again, to take philanthropy seriously. Um, the investments that we're making are really important. And in this time when we both have this massive global crisis to respond to and all of the ongoing work that's necessary, uh, where we put those philanthropic dollars for maximum effect is really important. I would encourage people to, to think locally and to think globally. Don't forget uh, one or the other, they're both really important. We do live in this pandemic as shown in an incredibly globally connected world. And we need to be making a difference both at home and abroad. Well, I think your advice will really resonate with our listeners. Um, I have this wonderful opportunity to meet with incredibly bright, thoughtful, giving people because of what I do. Our donors are really invested in not just giving, but giving well. And they think very deeply about it because they have a donor advice fund. They can be really long term in their thought process and they can set big goals for themselves in terms of the causes that they want to uh, focus on. But they're also really able to respond quickly to disasters and be very nimble in their response. So um, so I have a feeling you're going to be preaching to the choir a bit there, Michael, but I hope so, because I think uh, I think our donors have this great chance to make a difference. And um, we really celebrate that that's what they do. 
I'll just add too that, you know, in my, again, 25 years of doing this work, I mean, some of the most amazing and important parts of that have been interaction with incredibly generous, smart, strategic, philanthropic investors who, who empower and power us uh, and, the, and the work that we do. And it can't be more grateful to them, you know, every day, but especially right now. Uh, when um, when they're really needed at our side uh, to do this. This really is a, a partnership between organizations like ours, the donors who fuel the work that we do, and the people in the communities whose voices we need to hear very loudly about what needs to happen in their own communities. And when we put all three of these together, uh, really magical things can happen. Well, I know our donors have been big supporters of UNICEF over the years and are today. We like to say our donors are your donors because, um, because, you know, the minute they give to you, you have that opportunity to engage with them and ensure that they understand the value of not just the gift they gave, but the continued giving um, for the future. So, Michael, tell me a little bit about how nonprofits like yours can engage with donor-advised fund donors. Yeah, well, first of all, we, we certainly invite them into a conversation with us about, um, you know, their goals and what they're trying to accomplish and, and how we can help them do that. And for us to be able to share, you know, what our real needs are and see how we can, we can match these. You know, we are, uh, at the same time, uh, concerned about our work around the world. We're concerned about our donors at this time too, right? So there are a lot of, uh, risks that people are facing in their own families and communities. And, and we certainly want to, uh, recognize, you know, any needs that our donors have and, and understand them too. And I would say that those with, with donor advised funds in particular, uh, that this is a moment, I think, for them because I think their giving can be more resilient now because they have set up these donor advised funds, uh, for moments such as these. Um, and, and again, this idea that we need both support for our ongoing work and we need to respond to COVID-19. Uh, makes it a, a time for those who have resources set aside for philanthropy uh, to access those resources and put them to work. So we would invite, you know, conversations with, with people about how, how to get that done. Um, so really grateful for people who've thought carefully earlier about how, what their philanthropy might look like and use this vehicle of a donor advised fund to give them an opportunity to uh, be resilient in their giving. That's great. Well, I want to thank you for all the work that you and your team are doing around the globe to help children and their families at all times, and in particular during this crisis. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, it's been great chatting with you. And many thanks to our audience for listening. I hope everyone found today's show interesting and informative, and I truly hope you all find the value in giving. Mm-hmm.